If you don't know who I am, I'm Joel Repick. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont, especially if you're visiting with us. So glad that you're here. And I just want to tell you, church, I love you. And I, I spend time praying for all of you before... There's extra love up here in the front row for me. Um, I love spending time in prayer for you prior to preaching. And there's times uh, when I'm just praying for you and thinking about you, and I'm just filled with love. And this was one of those weeks. So I just love being in relationship with you and in community with you. And I'm so glad that you're with us today. Uh, we are starting a new series in the book of James, so you can turn there. We're going to be there the next five or six weeks together. You can turn to James, or the passages that we're looking at will be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, but why don't we pray as we approach God's Word? Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of God that is displayed in the passages that we're about to read and Lord, you desire for us to be wise. It says in James that if we're lacking in wisdom, we should ask for it and that you will give it to us. And so, Lord, we need your wisdom. And Lord, today we need your encouragement. Lord, I ask that the same spirit that inspired the words that we're about to read would work to encourage us in the present today as we approach the word of God together. We need your spirit. Lord, take your word which you have given as a gift to us to reveal to us your mind. Take your word and apply it to our lives. We want to not only know the word, but to walk in it. So let that happen today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me just introduce you a bit to the book of James, just briefly. Um, we're not exactly sure who wrote the book of James. Uh, his name was James. But the problem is there's a number of different people named James in the New Testament. But our best educated guess is that this James, who wrote the, the passages we're about to read this morning, is the earthly brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you remember, Jesus was conceived uh, in Mary's womb while she was still a virgin. It was a miraculous birth. But after his birth, Mary and Joseph uh, continued on to have other children. Now, those brothers and sisters, many of them did not initially believe in Jesus or his message, but eventually it seems that they did become believers. And James, who is a brother, the earthly brother of Jesus, eventually became a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. We're taking a break from the series we've been in, in the book of Acts, uh, but we're going to return to it in the fall. But you are going to see James, the brother of Jesus, show up uh, several times in the book of Acts as we approach that story again in the fall together. So James writes this letter uh, to an unspecified group of Christians who are scattered throughout the ancient world. We think that they are Jewish in their background. Uh, James obviously is Jewish in his background, but he writes a letter that's very Jewish in flavor that makes a lot of references uh, to things that uh, Jews would recognize really clearly. And he writes this letter, and it probably circulated through uh, different churches where Christians had been scattered. Now, the reason they had been scattered was because of persecution. So the Christians that he's writing to are people who are going through a hard time. They are going through trial 
But the trial has revealed something in these Christians, and it is their spiritual immaturity. And so this is a theme for James all the way through the book, is what it means to walk in spiritual maturity. And this is why it has great value for us today. Now, in the, in the Bible, the book that is closest to the book of James in terms of style is actually in the Old Testament. It's the book of Proverbs. If you're familiar with that Old Testament book, you know that it's a collection of sayings and teachings that are filled with practical wisdom for everyday life. And the book of James is written in a very similar style. Even though it's a letter, it's really a collection of sayings and teachings that offer us very practical wisdom. So James is a very, very practical book. It's easy for us to draw application from this book. I don't know if you ever had like a grandparent, a grandfather, a grandmother, or aunt and uncle, or even an old neighbor who would sit in your neighborhood and just offer these bits of wisdom that was just easy for you to hold on to and remember. Well, James is like an old grandfather giving you little bits of wisdom to remember. So there's lots to cling on to and to hold on to in this book. Uh, Today, I want to talk to you especially about what James has to say about perseverance, especially persevering in times of trial. And I feel like this is a timely message uh, for us today for a number of reasons. I've just felt that in prayer. Um, But to do that, we're going to look at some passages in James chapter 1, but also some passages in James chapter 5. Because of the way James writes, Um, It's a collection of sayings and teachings, and uh, teachings on the same topic are often spread throughout the book. So we're going to jump around just a little bit today. But I want us to begin by reading James 1, verses 2 to 4. You can stay seated today because we'll be jumping around these passages. But this passage is on the screen behind me. Here's what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Something I just want to pull out of this passage just as we begin here is that because there's purpose in the pain, we can take responsibility for our emotions in the trial. Because there's purpose in the pain, we can take responsibility for our own emotions in the trial. This last fall, I had the opportunity to attend a small conference in New Jersey with the Association of Churches, the Christian Missionary Alliance that we're a part of. And at that conference, there was a pastor who shared his own testimony of emotional maturity, what God had done in his own life to bring him to a more mature place. His name was Omar, and he shared his story this way. He said, I grew up in a home where... Uh, negative emotions, disappointment, and complaining were prized. Some of you grew up in homes like that, right? He said, we were a very religious family. He said, we were in church every Sunday, but we would come home and complain about the sermon. We'd come home and complain about the church. He said, on the weekdays, we complained about what was happening at work. We complained about what was happening in school. And he said, so even though I was raised in a Christian home, one thing that was never modeled to me at home was joy. And at some point in his preparation to become a pastor, he realized that this was affecting him deeply because even though he read about joy in the New Testament, right? The New Testament teaches that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, an evidence of 
of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, even though he could read passages about joy like the one we just read today, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters. He said, I had no experience of that in my life whatsoever. And he said, and I realized that the problem was not in my circumstances or in the people around me. The problem was in me somehow. And he said, so, he said, I spent a year studying every passage on joy that I could find in the scriptures. He said, I decided to start with the word of God to understand what does the word of God say joy is and isn't? How can I find it even when it feels like it's elusive? He said, then in community with people I trusted who I could open my soul to, I began to ask them, why do you think it is that I'm going through my Christian life lacking joy entirely? What do you think that is? And he eventually had a story of breakthrough. At the time that he was sharing this testimony, he was able to say, I have found joy even in the midst of trial in my life. Now, as I'm listening to this testimony last fall, I just realized that there was something different about it. This story was really striking me, and it took me a while to figure out why is it that this testimony sounds so different to me? On one hand, it was really basic, but on the other hand, I kept thinking, I haven't heard very many stories like this. What is it? And then I realized what it was. Very often in my Christian experience, in the church or in my own Christian walk, I rarely hear Christians take responsibility for their own emotions. And see, he was sharing a story where he took responsibility for an area of his emotional life that was weak. See, we often, and it's great that our churches, that our Christian communities are places where emotions can be brought out raw and open, even the negative ones, even the sad ones. I'm going to say more about that in a second because that is part of what it means to be a family on mission together is that there's a safe place for us to process that. But we often think it is loving to let people just wallow in their negative emotional life without ever challenging it in any kind of way. But friends, I've never grown that way in my emotional life. I've only ever grown from people who were willing in love to acknowledge my feelings, but also to challenge me where something was wrong. See, what James says here, he uses a verb. He says, when you're facing all kinds of trials, this is the first step to finding joy or perseverance in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. He says, consider it joy. Some translations say, count it joy. It's a verb that literally means to evaluate. What he's saying is, we have a choice. See, when we start hurting, we often think we don't have a choice. The enemy loves it when we think we don't have a choice. But we actually have a choice to evaluate the trial that we are going through through the lens of our lies that we've believed, or to evaluate the trial that we are going through through God's promises and purposes, right? And we get to choose. Every trial is an opportunity to choose one or the other. Now, you can imagine, if I'm only evaluating my trials through the lens of lies that I've believed, if I'm only evaluating my trials through my desire to be comfortable or my desire to be liked or or my desire to have status in the eyes of other people, or, or whatever. You can imagine why so many people are miserable, right? Because trials directly contradict many of the things that we are trying to seek. But if I am able to count it joy, consider it joy, evaluate my trials in the light of God's promises and purposes, well, a different narrative develops in my mind. 
a different narrative develops in my heart. It's not necessarily that the pain goes away, but I can find that I can choose to believe truth even in the midst of my difficulty. I can say, I might be going through pain right now, but nonetheless, this trial is going to test my faith so that it produces perseverance. Perseverance is going to finish its work in me so that I'm mature and complete. In other words, whatever pain it is I'm going through today is actually going to be for my benefit, for my well-being, and not for my destruction. I can choose to believe that and find joy even in the midst of the difficulty. It doesn't mean that the pain isn't real. Because I love Jesus in this regard. Jesus was so free with his emotions. He had no problem crying in front of people. He had no problem expressing what uh, burdened him in front of people. We're told in the book of Hebrews that when he cried, his prayer life was filled with groans and cries. That this is how he prayed in pain during his time on the earth. And yet the only way he was faithful in the suffering that he endured was because time and time again, he chose to evaluate even what the enemy was throwing at him in light of God's plans and purpose. And then the center of God's plans and purpose was his love for us. That's why Jesus was able to go to the cross. Next, let's look at chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who believe him. I want you to know this from that verse, that because God is our rewarder, the trial only serves to reveal our true identity. Because God is a rewarder, the trial only serves to reveal our true identity. My wife and I not all that long ago, bought a house just a few doors down from us on the same street. We've admired this house for some time, and uh, we fixed up the house that we currently live in. We're fixing up this other home, and we're going to move into it eventually. And so we've started the renovation process of this other home. And to, to get this house ready to move into, uh, we've had to put the home uh, through some things. We've ripped out some walls. We've torn down some plaster. The kitchen needed gutted completely. The bathroom almost close to that same level. We've done a lot of work in it, but listen, I'm not banging on those walls or tearing things down in it to destroy the house. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it because when we walked into that house, we were able to see past what was wrong with it, right, to its true character, we were able to see the potential that was there. And whatever hardship I'm putting on those walls right now isn't to destroy it. It's to reveal that house for what it really is. And this is so true of our lives too, brothers and sisters. Look what James says about suffering in this passage. He says that perseverance, when we continue on in faith in the midst of our suffering, perseverance reveals some things true about us. As it turns out, we are blessed Blessed are those who persevere. When we stand the test, it turns out that there's a crown of life for us. See, perseverance has a way of letting things fall off of our lives in the midst of the trial so that our true identities get revealed. Listen, in this room, I know there are some people who, are sufferers, who have suffered and who are suffering. But I also know this, that there are people in this room who we now get to see you in your fuller identity in Christ Jesus because of what you went through, because of what you suffered. 
we now get to benefit. We get to look at you and say, look at this person's identity in Jesus. And friends, I don't believe that would have happened if you hadn't suffered. I don't believe that would have happened if you hadn't been through that time of trial. It's interesting, even for Jesus, his identity gets revealed clear as he moves to the cross. You know, it's a wonderful thing when he was a little boy in the temple teaching, we learn something about his wisdom, right? That's part of his identity. Uh, When we see him include people on the margins of society that no one else would include, we learn something about his compassion. When we see him heal the sick and cast out demons, we learn something about his power. But it's not until he's hanging on the cross in the worst part of his suffering that we see the fullness of his identity, that he is the very love of God the Father directed toward us. That heaven has opened all of its blessings toward humanity. It's in Jesus' suffering that his identity most clearly gets revealed. Let's look at verse 13. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is what I want to say about this verse, that because trials surface what was already in us, trials are an opportunity for our freedom. Trials have a way of surfacing what was already in us. In verse 13 of chapter 1, we learn something, that these believers were not only experiencing trials, they were also experiencing temptations, and the two often go hand in hand, don't they? It is often in our time of trial that we are tempted by unbelief or fear or sin. It's often in our time of trial that we are tempted to things to numb the pain. Um, But James is saying this stuff was already there. I had the opportunity recently with some of our pastoral staff and Aliquip Impact staff to visit a school doing phenomenal work in the city of Pittsburgh, working with kids who are facing um, at-risk environments, and they're seeing just amazing results at this school. And on our second visit to the school, uh, one of the teachers said, let me give you a quick tour. I want you to see some of how this school is working. And he was teaching middle school students, so we went to this classroom. It was filled with sixth grade boys. And as soon as we walked into the classroom, you could tell the air was thick and tense because some discipline had just gone down, right, in the classroom. So all the boys are sitting there kind of with sad looks on their faces, and the teacher who was giving us the tour said, oh, wow, this wasn't a good time to bring you by this classroom. But then he asked the class, he said, hey, what happened in here? And one of the kids just raised his hand and said, we did not listen to the teacher, we did not clean up, it was our fault, and now we have a consequence because of it. And we noticed that response coming from that sixth grader. Why? Because what do we say about a kid who responds like that? We say this, what a mature response, right? What a mature response. Maturity is something that James is very concerned with in his letter. Why is it a mature response? Well, very simply, because he didn't blame anybody else. It's so easy, I've done it many times, it's so easy to blame circumstances. It would be easy for that kid to blame the other kids, to blame the teacher, to blame the schedule for that day, to to just start offering excuses. But this kid's response was mature because he took responsibility for his actions, 
right, in the midst of what he did wrong. That's a mature response. Friends, can we be honest that in the midst of the trial, your spouse did not put that response in you, right? That bitterness, anger, and resentment, your kids do not have the ability to insert that into your life, right? Not even your circumstances have the capacity to just insert all of those negative reactions into you. It's so easy to believe that we are just victims to these things. Here's the truth. All of that stuff, whatever came out of us in the trial, all of that stuff was there before the trial even began. And the trial is just revealing what was there all along. This is why James says, you can't blame God in the trial for the temptations that you're facing. Right? You can't say, well, if God would just make the circumstances different, if God would just change this relationship for these believers, if God would just lift the persecution, then we wouldn't be responding in these sinful ways. He says, God is not tempted and God cannot tempt. Here's where that came from, your own evil desires. Now, here's the good news. There is grace for every evil desire in your life that gets surfaced in the trial. Amen? If a thousand different character defects get surfaced in your trial, that's a thousand different opportunities to experience the grace and love of your Father in heaven. See, whatever the trial surfaces, there's no need to retreat into shame. There's no need to pretend like it isn't happening. Just let it come out because your season of trial can actually be your season of deliverance if you see that there's grace for it. That's some of what it means to move to maturity. That's some of what it means to allow the trial to create a new thing in us. It's like the trial is the place of our spiritual promotion. The trial is the place where our capacity for kingdom impact and ministry grows, where our capacity for love is increased. All of that happens in the time of suffering in a way that it's very hard to happen in any other kind of season. There's incredible grace in suffering for us to get free from things that we didn't even know that we could be free from before we went into it. Listen, when Jesus was pressed, all that came out was love because that's all that was in him. When he suffered, all that came out was more love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because all that was really in him was love. Whatever gets pressed out of us in the trial is actually what's in there. And friend, there's no reason to be ashamed about that. God wants to use every bit of that pressing to take you into greater and greater depths of freedom. Okay, now we're going to jump to chapter 5, verse 7. James goes on to talk about perseverance at the beginning of his book, but also at the end. And here's what he says. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Um, I like to grill during the summer. And I only do this a couple times during the summer maybe, but occasionally I like to grill ribs. Now, I didn't know, I, I used to be, I didn't know how to grill ribs, but then some people taught me in Aliquippa, and I don't think my ribs are the best, but they're pretty good. And I like, I like to grill them, and, and I can tell you this, from what I know about grilling ribs, the worst thing you could do 
is spend money on a nice rack of ribs, take it home, and then pop it in the microwave to cook it, right? Just, pop, just put some barbecue sauce on that, just throw it in the mic, take, take only a few minutes, right, to get that meat cooked. What you would be left with is rubbery nastiness, right? So what do you do with ribs? You take them home, you treat those things kindly, right? You pick your spices carefully. You put the right amount of, of whatever, however you're doing it, you put the right amount on it, and then you take all day. You don't cook ribs unless you have all day to sit by that grill, right? Because what we want when we eat ribs is for the meat to fall off the bone. Uh, listen, that's an example of how some good things just take time. This is a truth about what James says in chapter 5, that because good things take time, we can be patient in the trial. See, some good things just take time. Now, better than my ribs example is the example that James gives in chapter 5. He talks about farmers who, by nature of what they do every year, understand that some good things just take time. Some good things don't happen instantly. Some good things aren't microwave blessings. James is saying that there, God has built it into creation even, that some things take a while. Listen, have you ever considered how God's power moves in creation? Sometimes things can change in an instant, right? A volcano can change a landscape in an instant. An earthquake can create new mountains in an instant, and God does have power like that to change things in an instant. And we rejoice and we love it when we see that God moves in those kinds of ways. But do you also know that a small stream, the power of water being what it is, a very small stream, unremarkable, can change an entire landscape in hundreds of years. Can change an entire landscape in thousands of years. The force of that consistent water is so powerful See, James is saying farmers understand that some things take time. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. There are blessings in the kingdom of God that we will not see if we don't persevere to see them. There are blessings that God has for us that we will miss out on if we just give up too early. I really felt this as I was praying for you this morning Look, I think God can put us in a microwave and zap us and give us a blessing. And if God wants me in the microwave, I'll go into the microwave, you know? But I was just feeling this morning, God has some of you in a slow cooker. God has some preparation in a slow cooker going on. It's a slow blessing. It's a marinating blessing. It's a this is going to take time blessing. And our temptation in those times when trial is tempting us to disbelieve the promise of God, our temptation in those times is to believe that something is wrong because our prayer is not getting answered, because God doesn't seem to be speaking, because the trial isn't lifting right away. We tend to think that something must be wrong with the whole system. Something must be wrong with the kingdom of God. When in reality, God has given us example after example, and he has even built it into the creation that some things just take time. Friends, the enemy loves it when we give up. Don't give up. Some of you have blessings on the other side of that slow cooker. Don't give up. It doesn't mean something is wrong. God is working even in the midst of the slowness of it. Okay, last passage that we're going to look at 
in verse 9, moving on in verse 9 of James 5, it says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers or sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So I want to say about these verses that because the perseverance of others reveals God's character, we do not have to be alone in the trial. Because the perseverance of others reveals God's character, we do not have to be alone in the trial. James encourages these believers who knew their Old Testaments well, who knew the story in the Old Testament from their Jewish background, he encouraged them to remember the lives of the prophets who often suffered greatly in the midst of their callings. He he encouraged these believers in the midst of their suffering to remember Job. Think about his story. Some of you know his story from the Old Testament. I doubt there is any one of us in this room who suffered to the extent that Job did in his story. I doubt, I could be wrong, but I doubt there's any of us in this room who went through the amount and intensity of suffering that he went through. And James is encouraging them to remember these stories. We could add to these stories the New Testament martyrs. Interestingly enough, James, if James, the brother of Jesus, did indeed write this story, church tradition tells us that he eventually became one of those martyrs. Church tradition tells us he was eventually thrown off of the roof of the temple in Jerusalem to his death suffered to his death, if we counted up all of the stories of people who suffered in sharing the gospel, suffered in acts of mercy and justice, suffered in serving other people, suffered in leading the church, suffered in loving their neighborhoods from the time of the New Testament all the way up through until now, we'd see a lot of stories where people hurt very badly. But here is something else we would see that in a sense, God's own character was on trial in their lives. And every time that trial of suffering began to take its course, it revealed the same thing every time. James says it at the end of this passage, that God is full of mercy and compassion. It revealed his goodness every single time. And I think this is why James puts in here this uh, warning against judging other people, because in our trials, when we become impatient with God, we very quickly become impatient with each other right? And then before you know it, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, we are isolating ourselves from each other. And here's why that's so dangerous, is because not only in the scriptures, but in every community that names the name of Jesus, a family on mission like what is here in this room, in every community where God's power is working, where people are following Jesus, he has built a history of how his goodness works in suffering. He has built a very personal history in my life of how he works when things get hard, of how things are difficult when your back is against the wall. He has built that same kind of personal history in your life as well. There's not a ton of people in this room, but if we added up all of the personal histories in this room where God came through in a remarkable way, Um, we would see, right? 
we would see that in every one of these instances that God, when his character was put on trial, the verdict was that he is merciful and that he is full of compassion. This is why we can't isolate in our trials, friends. But listen, why sometimes, you know, when that stuff starts to surface that was in us before the trial, we want to retreat into shame. But the truth is we need each other in such a profound way when we are hurting. We don't need just each other's cheap encouragements, right? If you've been in church long enough, you know this, that sometimes when you're suffering, people will try to say things that are helpful that really aren't. And when it feels that way, when it feels like it's not helpful, often this is what's happening. Uh, someone is not acknowledging your pain, even if they're using religious language, even if they're saying a Bible verse to you and you feel like they're not acknowledging your pain, that's where the wound comes, right? So we don't need people just to say cheap things to us, but we do need people who've been through it. We do need people who have been through the thing that we are going through now. And it takes a community. God has deposited in us a verdict that he is merciful, that he is full of compassion in the midst of our pain. And like witnesses in a courtroom, we get to testify to that again and again and again to each other. It feels like he's not speaking. It feels like he's not moving. It feels like your prayers aren't doing anything. But in my life, God has been on trial. And I can tell you from the fire of my experience, he is merciful. He is full of compassion. The trial revealed not only my true identity, it revealed his true identity. It revealed how good he was. We got a clear picture of who he was because we went through the trial that we went through. Let me tell you this. One of the first times I went to a hospital to pray for someone was in Children's Hospital in Lawrenceville. And there are some environments that are more conducive to faith than others when it comes to praying for healing. Um, you know, when the worship music is playing and we're proclaiming the goodness of God and, you know, I like that stuff because sometimes it's like we're fighting our own unbelief, right? It's like, John, keep playing, keep playing because we don't know if this is going to happen, but we're just, right? We need the encouragement, right? So I'm all about cre creating environments that are conducive to faith. Hospitals are typically not that environment, much less children's hospitals. If you want to step into a place where you can so clearly see what's wrong with the creation, then step into a children's hospital. Because we know, intuitively we know, this is wrong. Kids are not supposed to be sick. This is a violation of how God created the world. We know that when we walk into a place like that. So I remember the first time I got called to pray for a child who was very sick in Children's Hospital. I drove there, and I felt like God was wanting me to pray a really bold prayer. And at that time in my prayer life, I don't know that I'd ever prayed a prayer as bold as what I was feeling led to pray. So it felt uncomfortable, and so I, you know, got my courage together, and I went to the hospital, and I went in, and I met with the family, and then I just completely retreated into nice pastor mode. I didn't pray anything bold. I just said some nice things. I prayed some comforting prayers. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying it wasn't my assignment that day. I knew that. And then I drove home. As soon as I got in the car, I felt so convicted. I drove home and I said, Chelsea, I completely messed that up. I, I was supposed to pray this prayer and I didn't pray it 
because I got overwhelmed by what I was seeing with my eyes in Children's Hospital. And my faith just dropped to the ground. It was zero faith. So I couldn't even get that prayer out of my mouth. And Chelsea said, well, it sounds like you need to go back. That was her response. I said, well, will you go with me? (laughs) She said, yes. And so we arranged for someone to watch our kids, and we went back. And I remembered how Jesus, like when he rose that little girl from the dead, he put people out of the room who didn't have faith that it would happen. I just went to the nurse and I said, I know things are critical in this room, but can we just put everyone out of the room for a little bit so that we can pray freely? And someone else from the church showed up and we went after it in prayer. And friends, that was one of many times that I've been in children's hospital doing the same thing. I've seen the Spirit's gifts manifest in children's hospital. I've seen bold prayers prayed in children's hospital. I've seen healings happen in children's hospital. And this is what I mean about a personal history with the Holy Spirit that produces faith because here's what happened. Last week, Chelsea and I took a day to spend time together and we went and ate at a restaurant in Lawrenceville. And I don't know if I was supposed to, but I parked at Children's Hospital. There were no signs, so I just did it. So I parked at Children's Hospital, which meant that we had to to pay inside the lobby of Children's Hospital. And when I walked in, do you know what I felt at this point? When I walk into Children's Hospital, it's an odd thing, but do you know what I feel? I feel the presence of God. I feel faith rise up in my soul. Because this is a place where I saw God at work. This is a place where I saw him break through. And this is why, friends, I I can tell you this. Your kid ends up in Children's Hospital. I'm going to gather some people, and we're going to go there, and we're going to establish faith in that place. I can't guarantee an outcome. I'm just saying we're going to establish faith in that place. We're not going to operate from fear. We're going to operate from faith. And if Children's Hospital for you is a place that sucks the faith right out of you, then let the Holy Spirit's personal history with me in regards to Children's Hospital step into that place with you. You see what I'm saying? This is how we support each other in it. You can do some of this for me too. Some of you have been through the fire of addiction and you saw God's goodness in it. Some of you have been through grief and you saw God's goodness on the other side of it. You saw how it produced maturity. Some of you have been through terrible chronic illness. Some of you know what it feels like to pray and to feel like you're praying to nothing at all. Like, is God hearing anything? Guess what? You alone don't have to have all the faith that is needed to keep walking in perseverance. God has put you in a community of people. And somewhere in this room, there's a personal history that can establish faith in the present of your story. Am I making sense? I can happen. We can be there for each other. The prayer ministers could come forward. I think the presence of God is here this morning to minister in the area of perseverance. Um, There's these times when God just puts steel into our soul in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our heartache. Listen, this morning isn't even about promising that God is going to take it away. Some of you are in a slow cooker. To pull you out now would make for a not very good meal right? Some of you are in the slow cooker, but we want to stand with you in it. You're in a community. You're in a community of people that will help you persevere. 